Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Candace. Hey, Jane. You know what's funny about American culture? What's up? We don't really have a long history like many other nations do. Yeah, so it's so true. When I look at, uh, when I research like the history of, of European cultures in general, and especially, it's like America's a baby. <laughs> it's compared true. to other countries. Yeah, it's, it's like taking a, a, the crying of Lot Forty Nine, this little novella, and comparing it to A Tale of Two Cities, this huge, chunky Dickensian novel. Mm. There's just not that much to our history, and so when. Well, that's not fair. There's not that much chronologically to our history. And so I get very frustrated when a story that I've grown up believing in may not be true. And let me qualify, too, that when I say there's not much to American history, I'm not speaking about the indigenous American Indians who were here before the settlers and colonists came. I'm talking about a timeline that starts with George Washington era. The American nation, United States, right. Exactly. The colonies and um, to the point today that we're in. Yeah. And I'm especially frustrated to learn that the story of Betsy Ross making the first American flag may not be true, because I feel like there are so many men who get credit for the different um, aspects of our culture that shaped our nation to what it is today. I really like the idea that a woman is due credit yeah. for something that we still honor and use on a daily basis. But as it turns out, that may not be true. The credit for the American flag may actually go to... A man as well. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated uh, situation. We don't really know exactly what happened and how true it is. And I was really shocked having learned the, like all the different facets that went into the story. And it's kind of a little controversy going on <laughs> about Betsy Ross. Yeah, and even if you go to the official Betsy Ross House website... They say, um, so historical fact or well-loved legend, the story of Betsy Ross is as American as apple pie. After your visit, decide what you believe. Well, Jane and I did not get a chance to visit the Betsy Ross house, so we're going to have to decide what we believe um, from the uh, confines of our cubicles in the HowStuffWorks.com office. <laughs> so here goes. <laughs> So to give you some background on Betsy Ross herself, she was born uh, January 1st, 1752, as Elizabeth Griscom, and she was the eighth of 17 kids in her Quaker family. She was originally born in New Jersey, but uh, when she was about three, her dad, who was a pretty successful carpenter, moved the family to Philadelphia, a bustling urban area. And when you think of Betsy Ross, you may imagine her as a very humble and meek woman wearing her little calico print dress with the white apron and the little dust ruffle cap. And um, we've we've heard before that she was a seamstress, but she was actually an upholsterer, mm-hmm. which deepens my respect for her because I think it would be you know far more difficult for a woman to handle such heavy fabrics as rugs and curtains and Venetian blinds even that she had to grapple with and not only was she trained as a seamstress but she apprenticed as an upholsterer in Philadelphia with another very esteemed upholsterer named John Webster and um she actually met another upholsterer with whom she fell in love, and that was John Ross. This is a really cute story, it too. Is. Yeah, because John Ross came from an Anglican family. He was sort of a son of a preacher man, even, because yeah. uh, his dad was assistant rector of Christ Church. So when John and Betsy fell in love, her family, her Quaker family, didn't approve of it. They it was, were star-crossed lovers. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it was really sweet. And so they actually eloped. 
because her family didn't approve of it, they had to elope. They they fled across the Delaware River. They married in a uh, Hugs Tavern in New Jersey. And they later returned to Philadelphia mm-hmm. and opened a shop together, you know, the two upholsterers. And unfortunately, that didn't last too long because John was part of the local militia and he was killed in a gunpowder explosion, I think only two years into their marriage. Yeah, it was really tragic. And they hadn't even had children yet at that point. And Betsy she was only was 24. 24, mm-hmm. a widow at 24. And so she was single for a little while. And then she met Joseph Ashburn and she later married him. And he was a seaman. And when he was at sea, his ship was captured by the British, and he was tossed into prison. And before the British released American prisoners in 1782, he contracted a strange illness, and he died. And unbeknownst to Joseph Ashburn at home, Betsy had given birth to their second child, and their first child had actually passed away. Yeah, when she was only about nine months old, I think. So at this point, tragedy had struck three times. Yeah, Two husbands and one child. Um, so she had a really tough life. We don't uh, usually think about Betsy Ross in that way. But yeah, Teuton widow by this time. Uh, it was about 1783 when she married again. This was this is also kind of a cute story because uh, she was old friends with a man named John Claypool and they sort of rekindled their relationship after the death of her second husband. And what's also sweet about this is that during this marriage, she was able to rejoin the uh, Quakers, the Quaker uh, friends. In this particular sect of the, of the Quakers was actually not traditional because they supported America's fight for independence. And you might know that Quakers traditionally are pacifists. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting um, facet about her her faith. By this time, Betsy had about, uh, well, she had five daughters with uh, John Claypool. But unfortunately, uh, one daughter died young. And John and Betsy were married for 34 years. Mm-hmm. But he actually became disabled later in life due to some battle injuries. And so she was caring for him in addition to caring for four daughters And then in 1793, her mother, father, and sister were all killed by an outbreak of yellow fever. So she got custody of her niece. So at this time, she's got six children living under her care, plus a disabled husband, and she's running the household. So her daughter, Clarissa, is actually helping her with her business. And by this time, Betsy is supplementing the income she makes as an upholsterer with helping out with, um, I guess, like, tents and soldiers' uniforms and mm-hmm. things like this from the war that she can make a little bit of extra pocket money on the side. And she actually continued her business for 50 years, and then she finally retired. She retired, and by about 81 years old, I think, she, she was officially blind, unfortunately. And uh, a few years later, she, she died in 1836. Peacefully, peacefully in her sleep. That's, that's true. Yeah. So, so even though she had a hard life, she died peacefully. <laughs> she did. And so to know this background, who Betsy Ross was, really helps to enhance my understanding of the Betsy Ross myth. Because mm-hmm. you, you hear that George Washington and this congressional committee, or at least they called themselves a congressional committee of Robert Morris and George Ross, supposedly turned to Betsy, who was not only a a fixture in the community as an esteemed upholsterer and an esteemed businesswoman, but she was seen as like a good community member. I think she was a friendly woman. And obviously to care for a household like that, she had to have had a really plucky spirit and a really hearty sense of business about her. Right. And to give you a little context about um, the famous flag story, this occurred pretty soon after the death of her first husband, John, in 1776, about 
So, like you mentioned, these three men, uh, George Ross, uh, you, that might spark up interest because they have the same last name. He was actually a relation of her late husband. He was, right. he was her, his uncle. And so it's, it's plausible, you know, that these three men would, would come to Betsy. And also, in addition to that, part of the story is that George Washington was actually a friend of the family, uh, a friend of Betsy's, and he had called on Betsy a few times, socially and professionally, at her upholster shop. So these three men come in, like you said, they, they say they're part of a congressional flag committee, and George Washington takes out a scrap of paper, and it, on it, it has a, a sketch of what he sees as his idea for the flag of the new nation. And uh, he asks if uh, she can sew it, and like you mentioned, she said, I do not know, but I will try. <laughs> um, and that undaunted spirit. Yeah, and... Uh, one one really cute part of the story, my favorite part, is that she suggested an alteration to the design. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the gall to go up to George Washington right. and say, um, I don't really like your, your design. I'm going to do something different. She actually suggested um, five-pointed stars rather than six-pointed stars, which was not standard at that time. Right, and I read that she actually took out a, a pair of scissors and just snipped off mm-hmm. one of the points of the star to show them how greatly it could be improved with this minor alteration. Yeah. And... The flag was not only a symbol for the fledgling nation, it was also a really important tool for helping to identify sides and different skirmishes that were breaking out during the war, because up until this point, they'd been using the Union Jack, which was the British flag, inside the design of another flag. And that could be pretty confusing, so they needed something that looked really different, something that was distinctly a part of the you know young United States, mm-hmm. and apart from the practical reasons, obviously you know you're breaking from your uh, colonizers. You want to have a flag that's that's drastically different from from uh, from Britain at this time, and so the flag I think both practical and very symbolic reasons you know close to their hearts. Right. So my perception of Betsy Ross would be that. She was a pretty gregarious, outgoing woman, hard worker. I can't imagine she was the sort of woman who went home at the end of the day and hung her head and didn't say hello to her neighbors. And I don't think this congressional committee had bound her to secrecy in any way. So that's why it's so peculiar to me that none of the colonists at the time heard this Betsy Ross story. I mean, put yourself in her shoes, Jane. Say that Barack Obama came up to you and said, mm-hmm. you know what, I really think we need a new flag for, for our nation. And you said, okay, uh, Barack, I think what you've got going here is pretty good, but instead of um, navy blue, why don't you use teal and mm-hmm. you make this brand new flag? You would tell people, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would publicize it. I would pr- probably first say I can't so, and I, I can write an article for you. But I do not know, but I will try. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, it is weird. So Betsy didn't tell anyone, and it wasn't until um, what almost a century after this this event supposedly went down that her grandson, William Camby, in 1870, addressed the Historical Society of Pennsylvania with a a speech about his paper, The History of the Flag of the United States. And this paper was based on stories, oral stories, he'd heard from his grandmother, Betsy. Yeah, and this is an important part, is that Camby was very open about the fact that he had no hard evidence to support the story, you know. This was, like you mentioned, almost a century, it was, uh, 1870, when he made the speech. And so um, he could only rely on stories he had heard from his grandmother, his late grandmother by this mm-hmm. point. You know, if he, if you hear some a story from your own grandmother, you, you're likely to believe it, you know. Right. And so you can see why Camby wanted to publicize this really fantastic story. But it is sad that 
he had no evidence to, to back himself up. It was all anecdotal. Right. And the refrain we keep repeating, the I do not know, but I will try. I promise last time I'll say it. Um, supposedly that's a line that kept being handed down in every retelling of the story. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, he very much was loyal to his grandmother and, and wanted to get this down for the history books that his grandmother had created the first flag of the United States. And there are definitely reasons to suspect that that's true. Like we said before, if George Ross was her late husband's uncle, he might have known that Betsy could have been struggling financially and she needed a little bit of extra work to help out, you know, with the home. And so true. he could have told George Washington and Robert Morris, you know what, let's go to Betsy. She can help us with this flag. She could really use the money. Um, one problem with that, though, is the fact that if there were actually a congressional flag committee, you'd think that there would be a hard, there would be records of it because Congress is pretty good about keeping records and uh, there's no evidence of that of such a committee one writer ed cruz brought up the point that if there were such a committee it's really unlikely that that george washington would be a member of it because he wasn't a member of congress and so my response to that would be maybe betsy didn't quite understand how they were identifying themselves maybe she embellished the story she didn't really know what sort of representation they were making of themselves. She just called them some sort of congressional committee. Or maybe she even said, you know, these men came and family members later retold the story and said they were a congressional committee. Yeah, but you're really gung-ho for Betsy's story, really aren't you? Like Betsy, <laughs> come on. But um, uh, June 14, 1777, Congress passed a law about the flag and clearly identified the flag as having 13 red and white stripes and 13 stars on a blue background, not dissimilar to the one that Betsy was said to have helped make. Yeah, so that's one piece of evidence we know. Like, we know by that point they had started, they knew what the flag Mm -hmm. was going to look like. And then even more concrete evidence would be that on May 29th, 1777, the Pennsylvania State Navy Board paid Betsy for making flags. Mm -hmm. The problem here is, did they pay her for making the first original American flag, or did they pay her for recreating and making more of the same design that yeah. someone else had already And not created. to play devil's advocate, I'm, I think you're going to lynch me in a few seconds for bringing up all these <laughs> holes in the story, but there's no evidence to show that George Washington actually knew or dealt with Betsy. Like the story mm-hmm. says, he was supposed to be a family friend who had called on her many times. There's no evidence in, in letters or anything that Washington ever mentioned her name or anything like that. And, I mean, that's not to say that this is evidence against. It's just lack of evidence. So we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking about the historical accuracy of of the story, I guess. So this brings us to part two of the grand American flag story, and that is a real Renaissance man and kind of a looker, judging from his old photographs. Um, Well, not photographs, as before photographs, obviously. (laughs) Portraits, I should say. And that's Francis Hopkinson, who was uh, descended from an Englishman who was actually friends with Benjamin Franklin. And his father died when Francis was pretty young, and his widowed mother made it a priority to give Francis a really good education. I think most mothers look at their children and think, oh, they're very gifted. I want to do right by them. But in this case, she knew Francis was something special, and he kind of was, and I suspect he kind of knew it, too. Yeah, you think he's kind of arrogant. I do, but he graduated from the College of Philadelphia and became a lawyer. And in addition to law, he also dabbled in science, music, poetry, painting, and he was known for his satirical quips. 
One thing I like about Hopkinson is that uh, he was an accomplished harpsichord player, and he actually <laughs> composed a lot of songs, uh, secular and religious songs, and um, also a man after my own heart. He wrote a lot of literary essays, and so you can see that he was an incredibly accomplished guy. And in addition to those attributes, he was also a congressman of New Jersey and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, so nothing to sneeze at right there. No. And... Um, in addition to that, he he was a judge later in life, and he was um, he was a big pusher for the Constitution, and he wrote a lot of articles that pushed for Pennsylvania to ratify it. So he he was uh, he was an influential um, politician as well. So his name comes up in this debate about the American flag because supposedly um, he wrote a, a lot of letters requesting payment for his design of the American flag, and he certainly designed a lot of things. And even his personalized book plate, which got circulated inside a book that he lent to someone and got tossed around through a few hands and eventually came back into his possession, had a book plate that had three six-pointed stars. And as you'll recall, the six-pointed star was the design that Betsy shot down and improved upon. But I guess it became sort of a, a trademark of Hopkinson's, or at least associated with his name. Yeah, and among his other like really accomplished we, things we know that he designed or helped design Things such as the the seal for the state of New Jersey, Continental Board of Admiralty seal, uh, seal for American Philosophical Society, seal for the Treasury too. Right? Yeah, yeah, and for the Great Seal of the United States. Apparently, he had a hand in that. And there, it, as a side note to that, um, so there are suggestions that he was a Mason and he helped, you know, incorporate these Masonic. Uh, um, uh, symbols and, and clues into uh, the Great Seal of the United States. But that's a whole podcast on its own. So Right. <laughs> so he started this letter-writing campaign after he supposedly created the flag because he wanted to be compensated for his work. And he started with a letter to the Board of Admiralty and then one to Congress, which actually included a bill for all of his designs. My favorite part of the story is that when he when he wrote the original letter, he wanted compensation in the form of a quarter cask of public wine, <laughs> which, uh, like you mentioned uh, to me earlier, Candace, is that I, I think I should get paid that for my writing my article. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and I think that this letter... The second one, actually, the one to Congress, got lost or it got ignored in the bureaucratic shuffle of the Board of Treasury. So he resubmitted another letter, and this time he itemized all the different charges for all of his different designs. We know for a fact that there are journals from the Continental Congress that give some evidentiary support to the fact that Hopkinson made the flag. But the Board of Treasury really stood firm by the idea that, and this is a direct quote, he was not the only person consulted on the flag's design. Which leads me to believe that perhaps Betsy Ross came up with a very nascent design for the flag, and then it was passed along to Hopkinson for approval and embellishment. Yeah, or I would think actually the other way around because of his six-pointed um, situation. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, and so, mm. uh, so maybe it was passed to Betsy after that, and maybe that was part of the scrap of paper that she supposedly looked at and there based, her, based her uh, design on. Well, in the end, we, we can't really be sure. And if you look at different websites out there about the American flag, and especially ones that are devoted to Hopkinson or devoted to Ross, there's some very biased points of view. So uh, we've been walking, I think, a fine line in presenting information. Obviously, I'm swaying toward the Betsy Ross side, because <laughs> I'd like to see um, the woman get some credit where I think it's due. But the moral of the story, if there is one, is keep good records, 
you know, <laughs> keep good records. There's no reason that as young as our nation is, yeah. that the information about who created the first flag shouldn't be on file somewhere. Yeah, well, now we have, like, uh, picture phones and stuff, so we can, yeah. <laughs> you know, if George Washington or Barack Obama comes in, we can we can snap a picture to prove it. There you go, exactly. <laughs> and not too long ago, I actually blogged about um, the story of the Star-Spangled Banner based on a flag that was flown at Fort McHenry. And Francis Scott Key was inspired by the battle so much that he wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. And that blog post was actually based on a reader request. And that's what we do on the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog. We're just that kind of kind of podcast, you guys. You write to us with questions, and we will do our best to answer them. That's right. Me and Candace write every day. Uh, we post on the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, come and take a look and leave comments and let you know, let us know what you think. And as always, you can still reach us by email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And we certainly hope that you will uh, visit the website to read this great article that Jane wrote called Did Betsy Ross Really Make the First American Flag on howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.